If you have your Bibles, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. They'll get you one. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're continuing our series in, in 1 Corinthians. And we left off with Paul leaving this statement in, in chapter 9, the last verse, where he said, I beat my body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And we talked about running this race and having the idea of you're not just in a race, you're there to win, that not everyone is going to finish the race. And he talks about this disqualification that causes this tension in our mind, wondering, what are you talking about, disqualified? What, what does that mean? I said a prayer, I, I'm in, right? I, I am okay like I am, right? And we want this kind of... We want to ease our conscience. We want to know if it's okay. We want to know that we're okay. And then Paul throws this disqualification word and doesn't really qualify what it means. And so we're left grappling over this and, and wondering what is this that he's talking about. And he's going to continue further in that vein. Try and, and give some explanation of what he is talking about, this disqualification and he's going to give some illustrations. And I, I find it curious to try and get someone to understand important things, the important things of faith, to try and get someone to understand the necessity of loving God and living for God. How do you do that? Because our tendency is to, to throw up this list of rules that you have to follow after, this list of things that you need to do, and then people get focused on the rules, and then they find the loopholes. Well, I did these things, so I can continue doing these things, right? Or how far can I get away with this before I'm in danger? And that question is already in danger. I know when I was dealing with high school students a lot, when I used to oversee a high school ministry, a lot of the, the students would come up to me and say, well, how far can I go you know, with the girl before it's a sin? And I'd say, it already is, buddy. Um, you're already there. You, you're, your mind is going someplace, and instead of thinking, how close to God can I get? You're thinking, how far away can I be and still be in the boat? And so how do you make clear that the heart is what matters? How do you address these things? How do you present them? How do you get people to understand? You know, it's like asking, how do you help someone to see the invisible things of God? How do you help someone to hear the inaudible things of God? And it takes relationship. It takes relationship. And this non-relational religion has kind of permeated our culture. This cheap grace... God knows, God loves me, I don't have to worry about. One time when I was painting, I was a painter, and me and my friends would uh, go out to lunch, and we liked to eat, and so we'd always, lunch was the highlight of our day, because we were painters, you know. <laughs> Anything's a highlight compared to painting. Uh, and I remember one time we were in La Puente and we knew of this good Mexican food place that we were going to go eat. And so we were talking about, hey, let's go a little bit further. We can go to this place and eat this good Mexican food place. 
And I was like, okay, yeah, you know, now we're excited to keep working because we know there's going to be lunch. And the guy who was there, whose house we were painting, it was this white guy. And he goes, I know a great place. And we're like, really? Yeah, we're, we're open. Yeah, we'll try someplace new. Yeah, it's just down the street. You don't have to go that far. It's just down the street. And we're like, yeah, what is it? What's it called? He goes, it's called Taco Bell. <laughs> oh. Wow, never heard of that place, you know. And, and you see, his idea of Mexican food was Taco Bell, you know. And, and some people, their idea of God is just limited. They don't understand, you know, that's not really Mexican food. That, that's imitation. Yeah, it's good for fast, but, you know, it's not the real deal. And some people have this concept of Christ and, and following after God that it's this religion It's not this relationship. It is the less than the genuine thing. And Paul is pushing home to the Corinthians the issues that are there in this church. And let's read verses 1 through 13 in 1 Corinthians 10. It says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud And in the sea, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Paul starts off in the first verses and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud. And he's connecting them back to the nation of Israel. And he says, under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea, that they were all baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea, that they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank the spiritual, from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. That rock is Christ. And, and what he's doing them, to them is connecting them to the nation of Israel. And the illustrations that he's giving to them are very sacramental. What does that mean? They're very much sacred. They, they are showing that God was active in the nation of Israel. And the sacraments that he's talking about are ones that they can connect to. Baptism. They were baptized in this type as they passed through the Red Sea. Just like we are baptized into Christ. They ate 
this food that was given from heaven. We have and partake of the bread. They drank the rock that was provided. We drink the wine that is there in the communion elements. And so the idea is here is the baptism, the, the food that is provided, the drink that is provided, much like we enjoy. You see, there is something very similar to what happened to the nation of Israel that is a part of your life. God was active in their midst. He showed up. He was doing things. He was presenting himself in these methods just like he has done for you Christians that are there in Corinth. And so you have a lot that you can identify with these people. There is something there meant for you to embrace. And as he gives these examples, you think about the nation of Israel going through, passing through the Red Sea. And you think of God providing food from heaven and drink from a rock. And the, the rabbinical tradition was that this rock was carried with them and God continued to use this rock throughout their journey. And you think, if I was there, when those things happened, I, I wouldn't doubt. I would believe I mean, come on, you, you cross through, you know, you got the, the mighty hand of Pharaoh that's coming after you, and there's this great body of water, and then God miraculously parts this water. You, you know, trot across on, on dry land, because I'm sure I'd be running if I was in there, you know. I'm not going to stick around long. I'm going to get through. And you go through this water, and then they try and follow you, and the water collapses on them and destroys the army that's pursuing you. And the bread, the manna from heaven, the drink. I, I think I would respond and say, you know, I ought to be thankful for the one who's doing these things. I ought to give kudos. Thanks, God. This is a good job. You're with us. I, I, I believe. I just have this idea that I wouldn't doubt. But you know what? We do doubt. I know that as soon as I got in the desert, I'd go, it's hot. <laughs> the desert's hot. And I miss the, the grilled onions that we could have had with the food. And we do complain, even though we have and enjoy blessings. And so it's not uncommon to see that they move to this place because I think that's a lot like us. And so we, we can't write off those crazy Israelites or those crazy Corinthians, because we are very much like them. And Paul is using this illustration because it is something that we can connect to. It is something that we can see ourselves in. And as he presents these things to them, he tells them, don't you remember that? Don't you remember what happened to these people? And how all of them, the entire nation was scattered, bodies over the desert. Now that's a picture. You're talking about a million plus people. Everyone over 20, except for Joshua and Caleb. So if you think, you know, if we had a church that was just 20-something, we'd be good. Not in this case. They'd all be dead. Million people, million graves that are there in the desert. That's a picture this is something that's serious. God 
is trying to, to make a point, and Paul is emphasizing this point. You guys, we're very similar to what was taking place with these people. And he goes on in, verses, in verse 6, and he says, Now these things occurred as examples. He says, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. The idea of the heart is the seed of emotion, affection, desire, and ultimately of worship. And so when he talks about setting our hearts, it's about putting our hearts and establishing it in a certain direction. And he's writing these things so that we will not point our hearts in the wrong direction. And this is really key because where we set our hearts to focus on is where we are going to go. And like I was saying at the very beginning, how do you establish the difference between this non-relational religion and this following after God and Him being a passionate part of our lives? Well, it has to do with where you set your heart. And it's very easy to set our hearts on the wrong things. And that's why there has to be a direction that we point our lives in. We don't just follow our hearts. Because that who knows what that'll look like? Some days that looks good, some days that looks bad. Jeremiah tells us that our heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And you see, living our life with following our hearts doesn't really work out. We would beat each other senseless if we followed our hearts. Well, some of us would. Some of us would get beaten senseless. You know, it, it just, you don't, the officer pulls you over. What are you doing? I was just following my heart, officer. It told me to go 85, you know. No, there has to be guidelines, otherwise you are going to get in trouble. Well, I just following my heart and I, I, I fell in love with this other person. And we act like it's just this whimsical thing that happened. And we tend to justify our sin in that way, don't we? When we fall in this area of, you know, lack, we try and justify it and paint the picture so that it doesn't look so bad. Well, you know... I was really tired. I hadn't been sleeping much. And, you know, I took this cough medicine and it kind of wigged me out. And next thing I know, I had an affair. You know, it's like, no. <laughs> it doesn't happen that way. You, you set your heart towards evil things. That is where you focus and that is where you go. And so... This is an example to tell us that where we set our hearts is very important. And the warning is there that we need to take care of this willful choice of where we set our hearts. And I've been sharing this a lot lately. You can know the right thing, but if you love the wrong thing, you will make the wrong decision. And so it is so important that you set your heart towards God, that you love Him, that you want to seek after Him. Otherwise, you will fill it with whatever you desire, and that will change day to day, week to week, year to year. And this is an example of how that's changed. This is an example of a nation that set their hearts in the wrong direction. And what Paul then does is gives... Four 
evils that they set their hearts on. You see, this wasn't an accident why they died in the desert. They set their heart on these things. And and the first thing he mentions in verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. Now this is taking place in Exodus chapter 32. Moses goes up to the mount to receive the commandments from God. And while he's gone, the people go up to Aaron and they say, hey, we don't know what's going to happen to Moses. We need something to worship. And so they get their gold, they collect it, they melt it down, they pour it and make an image of a calf, and they start worshiping, saying, this is our God, this is the one who delivered us, and this revelry that they're talking about has sexual innuendos. You know, it's just some, some kind of perverted kind of thing going on, and Moses comes back down the mountain and goes, ah, this is God's people, wow, look what's going on. And you see, they worship these this golden calf, this pagan problem, and, and Idolatry was a problem in Corinth as well. We talked about the temples where people would go in and eat and all the idolatry that took place there. And so again, there is a connection to what is taking place. They worship these things and you have the potential to do the same thing, to have a false god that you worship. And for us, you know, we don't worship golden calves, I don't think, I hope not. That's not the issue for us in idolatry. But you see, idolatry really is whatever has power in our lives. Whatever, whatever we give ourselves to and whatever we trust in. And idolatry was a problem with the nation of Israel. It was a problem in Corinth. And it is a very big problem today with us. Because what we really trust in many times is not God. It's our job and our career. Our lives and our emotions are tied to our happiness is based on that relationship. If that guy likes me, if that girl likes me. People kill themselves over a breakup. Why? Because it's an idol. Their hope, their Their life is based on this. It's not based on God. You see, they've set their heart on this person, on this success, on this pleasure. If I can keep the party going, just keep myself happy, keep myself numb so I don't have to think in the silence about my life and what's going on, then this will become my life. This is how I live, and I'm going to just keep pursuing after this. This is what I'm all about. You've set your heart in that direction. And it's idolatry. You see, because God is not the passion of your life. Something else is. And whatever that something else is, has taken God's place, is what you pursue above all things. And it's a difficult thing to admit that there are idols in our lives, that there are things that are taking God's place. Because we have this mindset, idolatry is the golden calf kind of a thing. It's not the person, it's not the career, it's not the pursuit of comfort, pleasure. And we'll do whatever we need to keep that thing as a part of our lives. And so we set our hearts in different directions. And I remember hearing and and thinking 
So many times people will say, well, you know, religion is good as long as you don't get too carried away with it. It's good you have Jesus, but just don't get carried away with it. But you see, the whole point is to be carried away with it. The whole point is that it would consume me. That God would be the passion of my life. And his desire for me would be my desire, period. And that's frightening to us, because what does that look like? I don't want to give myself wholeheartedly to God, because I don't know what God's going to do. And we're afraid of what God's going to ask us to do. If I love God, he's going to make me go to India, and I hate Indian food. I, I know it, I just know it. And so we pursue other things, and we set our hearts in other directions, not really that, realizing that, no, God needs to be the passion of our lives. He needs to have the priority in our lives and that we cannot live without that effectively. And so the Corinthians had all this knowledge about God. They had all these things that they knew. Remember, knowledge puffs up, but love is what really builds up. And so they could talk about all these things, but their passion wasn't God. It was their freedoms, it was their lust, it was all these other things that they pursued. And as Paul talks to them, he says, you know, they were idolaters, as is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, got up and indulged in pagan revelry. The next thing he mentions is we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Now this is talking about Numbers 25 when the Moabite women came down and seduced the men of Israel into sex, and then they also seduced them into worshiping Baal. Now, these are stories you don't usually hear in Sunday school. You know, when you talk about the children of Israel going through the wilderness, you know, you don't talk about, and here's where the Moabite women came down, had sex with the guys. You know, let's save that one for fifth grade, maybe. You know I mean? You just kind of... But these are the realities of what takes place, And, and... Paul is presenting this because, remember, the Corinthian church had a problem with sexual immorality. It was very prominent in their culture. The temples that were there that were prostitutes worshiping, they talked about those people who were given into this area. Paul has addressed it very in-depth in the previous chapters. Guess what? We, in our culture, have a problem with sexual immorality. It's common. It's considered no big deal. Why do you guys make it a big deal? Well, apparently God thought it was a big deal because there's 23,000 graves out in the wilderness. God's wanting to make a point here. Uh, I'm serious about this one. I consider this a big deal. And I know we're, you know, that's archaic, that's, you know, gosh, why, why don't you get into the modern age? This is something that we should be free and have our freedoms. But I got to tell you, I've seen the damage that se- sexual immorality has caused. I've seen it, and this isn't just for single people, this is what happens in marriages as well. But I've seen what happens when people point their heart in the wrong direction and give over their desire sexually and how it leaves devastation in the lives of people, how it destroys love. And people sacrifice what is genuine love for something that is much less than. 
when it is meant to work together. And I've seen the single moms raising children by themselves because it wasn't about love, it wasn't about commitment, it wasn't about the vows, it was about the sex for some guy. And I've seen the marriages where the grass looked greener on the other side and so the man, the woman has left their spouse to pursue a relationship because they were enticed, just like the Moabite women entice the children of Israel, the men. They're enticed by sex. They go, and now there's children that no longer have their father or mother constantly in their lives and grow up in a broken home. I've seen relationships struggle. They break up, get back together, break up, get back together, break up, get back together, and never invest in the things that are necessary in a relationship because they think it's enough that they're close enough to have sex. And so the relationship never builds up and never becomes strong because they've pointed their heart in the wrong direction. You see, I, I've seen enough of the damage to know that our freedoms are not really good for us. And I've counseled enough people and sat down with enough people crying about the devastation that has been caused because of this freedom to say, it, it's a lie. It's a lie. Don't buy into it. And God cares enough to leave 23,000 graves in the desert to say, this is what I think of sexual immorality. And remember, sexual immorality is anything sexual between someone who's not married. And what I mean is sexually enticing. Okay, so it's between any two people who are not involved in a husband and wife relationship. That's sexual immorality. It doesn't mean that you don't talk, you know, you can't talk to anyone about sex or whatever. That's it, you know. If I, on a phone call, you know, talk to someone and they say, well, you know, uh, I think my husband's having an affair. Oh, no, I've just talked about sex. Oh, no, you know, that, that's not what it's talking about. It'd be like the conversation saying, well, what are you wearing right now? You know, and that'd be... <laughs> I know I just freaked a bunch of people out. <laughs> I won't be calling Sam, that's for sure. <laughs> but that's what it has to do. It has to do with the enticement, okay? Not just the conversation. Just wanted to make that point. I probably could have made it better. Uh, anyway, you set your hearts on these things. They don't just happen. And it's important that we present these things and these stories that happen. You know, that story of the Moabite women, it's meant for us to learn. And so it's kind of tragic that we leave it out of the Sunday school lessons. I understand age appropriate, but it's something that needs to be there and that we need to understand that God cares about these things and it is something that will deter your heart from God. And so if you're involved with this, you've got to know something's wrong. Something's wrong. He goes on and he mentions another thing in verse 9. He talks about testing the Lord. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Testing the Lord, what is that? It has to do with not believing or not trusting God, not having faith in God. It is disbelief. Remember when Jesus was tempted, Satan took him to the top of the temple and said, just throw yourself off and the Lord will give angels charge of you so that you will not be hurt. And he said, you don't test the Lord your God. You don't tell God what he needs to do and correct him for what he's doing. 
God, I don't believe you've got this right. I'll show you how it's supposed to be done. And they tested the Lord. They were constantly complaining, God, I don't like the person you've put in charge. This Moses, he's dropping the ball. God, we had things better when we were back in Egypt. What have you brought us out here to die? This is how you should do it, God. And God has done all these miraculous things. I delivered you from the hand of Egypt. I'm providing food for you. I'm providing a cloud to keep you cool during the day. I'm providing a pillar of fire to guide you at night. I am taking care of you and you're complaining? Mm-mm. And so he sends these snakes, these fiery serpents that bite them and they die unless they will look up at the serpent that is raised up on the brass staff and have faith that God will be the one to heal me. And if they will look up, they will be healed. We, say, we saw that Jesus, like the serpent who was raised up, had to be raised up on the cross. And in the desert, what we do is we have the serpent, a, a symbol of sin. We have brass, a symbol of judgment. We have sin being judged, lifting up there. And the idea was to put your faith in what God is doing. We test the Lord when we don't trust God. God says, I will take care of you. I want you to live this way. Well, God, I'm going to have to cheat on my income tax. It's coming up. Because otherwise I just can't make it. And God says, no, you're, you're testing me. You're not trusting me. You don't believe that I really can take care of you. And you don't really believe that it's important that you live in a, li- a way that is reputable and honest and a good example, and so you're going to steer your heart, set your heart in this direction, and you're testing me. And God says, don't do that. Paul says, don't do that. Don't think your way is better than God's. And don't we do that? We don't say these things out loud. No one says, I think my way is better than God's, but we live that way. We live that way. I think God's okay with me doing this. But the scriptures say don't. I know, but God doesn't know about me. I'm different. <laughs> we, we agree there, but, you know, <laughs> we can't test God in these things. He's good. He's shown his goodness, and he's worthy of your trust. He's given his son for us. He has gone further than we could imagine to reach us, to show his love and goodness towards us. We need to trust him. We need to put our faith in him, put our hearts and set our hearts on him. He goes on in verse 10 and says, And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Again, grumbling. Notice all these people keep dying. Okay? You know, they did this, they died. They did this, they died. They did this, they died. Guess what? You do this, you die. There's a death that follows the disobedience. And here we talk about grumbling. And grumbling is kind of second nature for us. And he gives examples of this in Numbers 14, Numbers 16. I mean, as soon as they got across the the Jordan River, they started complaining. And, And we do complain. No one ever calls customer service to say thank you. You know, I just want to thank you. You guys are doing a great job. 
No, we, we call because we're complaining because you owe me. I, I, I have this, you know, problem here. And this grumbling and complaining is something that they grumbled against Moses and they grumbled against God. What were the Corinthians doing? They were grumbling against Paul and they were grumbling against God. What do we do? We grumble against the people maybe over us, the pastors who talk or maybe the people uh, in the church or we grumble against, you know, what's taking place and we're grumbling against God. And you got to stop this attitude because it's, again, setting your heart on these things. And this happens with everybody. And he's addressing the people who are in the church. I've sat in conversations and meetings with pastors who are grumbling. It happens all the time. We complain. Oh, so-and-so did this. I can't believe so-and-so did this. I know. They're going to, you know, if they think they can get away with this, they've got another thing coming to them. And this complaining that goes on and on and on. The difference, there's a difference, though, between grumbling and lament. And this is important because God is not telling you those emotions and all those things that you feel just too bad. Deal with them. And so you've got this muted rage taking place because you're so angry but i can't do anything because there's grumbling so oh i'll go worship god you know i mean you look at the psalms and the psalms have this lamenting god why do the enemies prosper god where are you I don't see you. It is darkness. The waves are are crashing around me. But you see, there's a difference because the psalmist is praising. He's looking for God. He's asking for God to show himself. He's not complaining against God. And there's a difference because God is not telling us, just deal with it. I don't really want to hear about it. And this is really important, especially in in relationships. You know, if a husband and wife are having issues, well, I guess I just got to deal with it because otherwise I'm complaining. No, you can talk about these things. But the idea isn't just to talk about these things, to complain about them. It is to talk, to rectify the situation, to, to get past it, to grow in these things. The psalmist talked about these things because it was his form of worship. He was crying out to God. He wasn't complaining to or against God. And so the idea of grumbling has to do with the idea, the difference between just being angry and the difference between actually being honest and hurt. And grumbling doesn't have to be out loud. There's a lot of people who grumble and never say a word. And so if you think, well, I don't grumble, Hear it, and you're thinking it, guess what? You're grumbling. It doesn't have to be verbal. But you see, this is the kind of thing that poisons who we are. And pretty soon as you continue grumbling about people, grumbling about whatever it is, pretty soon nothing pleases you. And it's a danger, because there's a lot of bad things that are worth complaining about. But if you give in to just grumbling and complaining about the things without taking these things to God and trusting him for that, it'll poison your soul. It will poison you. And pretty soon it's all you focus on and it becomes your world. And your world is just miserable. 
because everything is a complaint. Everything is a grumble. And you see, how can you have faith that God cares about you, loves you, and has done so much for you if you're always complaining? I know people who are in just dire circumstances who still worship God and still have joy. And you think, how can this be? It's not about the circumstances. It's about the relationship. It's about setting their heart in the right direction. And if you set your heart into complaining, it's going to poison you. And again, they died. A whole nation, there they are, more holes in the desert, more graves in the desert. All a testimony of these things that have taken place in their lives. The graves in the desert are an example for us. And Paul concludes these things and he says, verse 11, these things happened to them as an example and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. In other words, God wrote these things about what happened to them in the wilderness to us and we've got something better. Jesus said prophets and kings have longed to see what you see and have not seen it. We have the fulfillment of the ages. We have Jesus. He is our example. He is our, our hope. And if we will not steer our hearts towards him, we will fall into the same problems that they did, the problems of idolatry, the problems of sexual immorality, testing the Lord, grumbling, complaining, not realizing that God has given us such an incredible gift. And what do we do with that gift? Are we pursuing it? Are we passionate? Are we loving and thankful for what he's done? Or are we complaining? Are we grumbling? Are we telling God, you're not doing things the way I'd like to see them done, God. I'm going to seek pleasure here. I'm going to worship. I'm going to give myself to these other areas and not realizing, do you not know what God has done in the person of Jesus and what is there before you? Are you going to do what the children of Israel have done and you've got something even more precious than that? And so the warning is clear. The example is clear. Verse 12, he says, So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You see, we are a privileged people. But many times we're a privileged people who do not believe. And if you think you've got it all together, and if you think you're standing, if you think that you can live this spiritual life without spiritual dependence on God, then you're mistaken. And if you think you have enough information to carry you through life and not realize that it's not the information, but it's the relationship that you need to carry you through this, then you're misunderstanding things. And if you think you know something, you really don't know as you should know. And if you think you're standing, you, you need to be careful. Because what are you standing on? We stand on the grace of God. We stand on the dependence of God. What we stand in is not our own ability, not our own strength, but what God gives. And so he tells them, you've got to be careful here. And he's telling us to be careful. And see, we come back to this point. How do you make someone love God? How do you convey the importance to someone that what really matters here is your relationship with God. And if you think you stand, if you think you've got it all figured out theologically, you're missing something. 
It's not about the information. It really is about this relationship. And, and in the midst of all this, as he's giving out these warnings, and as our heads are going, oh my gosh, what's going on? How, where do I stand? So am I saved? How do I know if I'm going to be saved? What can I do? I mean, I said that prayer. I'm okay, right? I'm, what do I have to do to be okay? And as we read through this, and our brains are about to explode, and go, I don't know what to do. He gives us hope. And thank God for hope. And in verse 13, he tells us, no temptation has seized you. I love that. It hasn't taken you. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. This is a promise that God has given to us. You see, Paul is saying, I believe you're going to make it. You Corinthians, as messed up as you are with all these problems, I believe you are going to make it. Not because I have confidence in you, but because I have faith in God. I believe God is able to do this. And nothing has seized your life that people haven't already experienced. And nothing has seized your life that God isn't greater than and isn't going to provide a way of escape. And there is no addiction, no problem that I don't believe God can deliver you from. There is no problem in your marriage that I believe God can't heal you from and get you past. If you are willing, he will make a way of escape. And you see, we need to embrace this, but how can we hold on to this unless we are holding on to God? And that is the whole point here, you guys. This isn't about religion. This isn't about doing your duty, paying your time in, coming to church, put your money in the bucket, you know, you assure you do this, you, whatever it is, walk old ladies across the street, whatever things you think God wants you to do. Forgive me, old ladies, I still want to help you across the street. Uh, this is about embracing God with your life and allowing Him to be the most important thing in your life. Allowing God to actually be God in your life. And when you do that, there is nothing that is going to seize you that God cannot deliver you from. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean you're not going to struggle. But you have set your heart, your course is towards God. And it is what holds you. It is what consumes us. It is what has taken hold of us. I went to a leadership conference yesterday, and the theme of the conference was, I choose insanity. And I think, okay, what does that mean? And it was kind of taken from 2 Corinthians, where Paul is again talking to the Corinthians. And he says... In verse 12 of chapter 5, he says, We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. 
if we are in our right mind, it is for you. And the idea is, you know, people are going to think you are crazy if you live your life for Jesus fully. Paul, when he stood before Festus, he said, you're out of your mind, Paul. You think I'm going to become a Christian so quickly? And Paul said, oh, I wish you and everyone who heard me would be even as I am except for these chains. I am so committed to Jesus that I would rather give my life for him than live free without him. The passion of our lives and where we set our hearts is going to determine how we live. And God has given us this instruction so that we will recognize the mistakes that were made, not fall into them. But more importantly, we will realize that God is for us. He's planned our lives. He's good. He's faithful. And if we will commit ourselves to him, he will give himself to us. He will strengthen us. He will help us. And he will guide us in the course that we need to take. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would help us to learn from these examples. And God, I, I don't know how to, to better explain, Lord, the importance of surrendering our hearts to you. I think Paul has laid that out so beautifully here in these passages. And I pray that we would take this and learn it, Father. And that we would guard ourselves from the things that he mentioned, the idolatry, the sexual immorality, the, the testing, the lack of faith, and from the grumbling, complaining, God. But we would set our hearts not on evil things, but on you. Lord, that's the only way we can not fall into the temptation, is if our hearts are set on you, wanting to love and please you. And God, otherwise, it's so easy to fall. It's natural for us. But may we set our hearts this morning on you and all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.